I don't particularly care about the holiday, but like Thanksgiving is more my holiday. I like that better. But like, yeah, I like having a tree in my front room that I turn on when I get up early in the morning. It's dark. So <laughs> like, yep. yeah, I'm going to do all that. Yep. I like all that stuff too. It's like Christmas, Christmas in our house. Is that what it's called? Half and half. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I, you know, I go, go whole hog on all of it. So yeah, it's a festival of lights in the true sense of the word. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, after a judge found that holding juveniles at the maximum security facility at Angola was a violation of their constitutional rights, some of those kids have now been moved to a juvenile detention facility in Jackson Parish. That facility is also holding pre-trial juveniles but does not have the required license to do so. And after an Orleans Parish Civil District Court judge granted a temporary restraining order to an advocacy organization that sued the city in September, halting the construction of the controversial jail facility known as Phase 3, a ruling issued this week says that project can proceed. And the fate of 21 New Orleans public schools remains unknown as the State Department of Education awaits the annual report cards on those schools. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle. Hey, Nick. Thank you. And education reporter Marta Jusen. Hi, Marta. Hey, Carolyn. Nice to see you both. So, Nick, um, let's talk about these kids that are being held at this at this facility in Jackson Parish. There's a couple of issues. One was the um, the kids that were being held. Uh, you know, I don't want to say illegally, but their their constitutional rights had been violated at Angola by holding them at Angola. Now they've been moved to a facility in Jackson Parish. They're being held in a facility that's holding pre-trial juveniles, and that facility doesn't have the proper licenses to hold pre-trial juveniles. Is that right? Yeah, that is right. Okay. Um, so as you said, the kid, the kids who were being held at Angola, a judge ruled that the conditions there were so bad that they needed to be moved out of there. Um, you know, immediately the Office of Juvenile Justice moved them to this facility in Jackson, which was it, it run by the Jackson Parish Sheriff's Office. It's a jail, and then there's a, a, a detention section of the of the jail, and it's a brand new facility that was just built, just opened this summer. Um, so the Office of Juvenile Justice moved the, the kids from Angola there. But it turns out, well, well, you know, that was kind of what kind of brought this facility into the into statewide news was was these kids being moved there. But yeah, um, there were also pre-trial or pre-adjudication in, in juvenile justice terms, kind of the same thing. But kids who have been arrested but a judge and judge didn't really determine what their sentence is yet. Um, so, you know, the juvenile equivalent of a jail, there were kids who were pre adjudication being held at this facility as well. And, and from what we learned, they were being held in the same, same, uh, kind of dormitory areas that the state sentenced OJJ kids were being held in. But what we also learned is that this brand new facility hadn't gotten the proper licensing from uh, Department of Children and Family Services to be housing these kids. So OJJ, 
the state agency does not require any independent licensure from the state. They can open a secure care facility and house kids there um, without any special license. But uh, for a facility to house pre-child kids, it does need a license from from the Department of Children and Family Services that needs to kind of inspect their policies and go to the site and visit it. And Jackson does not appear, they, they have not done that. They don't have a license. It's unclear kind of, it appears that they started to get a license, but it's not clear what stage they were in and they never completed it. So they're housing these kids illegally. Is there is there middle ground here too, Nick? Like, so we have kids who are tried as adults who are in OJJ custody, right? Do we also have a, if kids were, are tried as kids are in OJJ custody as well as like- Yeah, use, yeah. Kind of so everyone in OJJ custody has been tried as a juvenile. There's no one who's been tried as an adult. But these are kids who have been sentenced. So OJJ, they're called secure care facilities, are basically the equivalent of a prison. Um, you know, you've received your sentence and you're serving a certain amount of time. They're not supposed to function as prisons. They're supposed to be, you know, rehabilitative and, and you know, you're supposed to get education and, and everything else. But that's the, they're, you know, in the uh, progress of, of juvenile uh, justice, they they function as a juvenile prison. Um, the pre-trial kids are, are yeah not sentenced yet. Okay, and this facility had been under construction for a while, and that is one of the reasons why originally these adjudicated kids, the pr- prisoners, had had been first sent to Angola because this place wasn't ready. This is a local jail facility, um, and when it opened, it was it, the office. Juvenile justice had no intention of using it as a secure care facility. Okay. Um, as far as I can tell, they needed to move these kids out of Angola. They didn't have anywhere to put them in their own secure care facilities. And they found this, you know, open space, basically, that's being run by a local sheriff's office. Um, and from what I, from my understanding, this is supposed to be a temporary thing until they open another secure care facility that, that are under construction. Uh, so it's not like this facility was being built with uh, these OJJ kids in mind. It wasn't. It was being built as a potential pretrial uh, detention facility, um, which would have required the license and, and which is why they probably started getting the license. What DCFS told me and is that when when that agency found out that the OJJ kids were going to be sent there, they stopped the licensing process because they thought it was going to be used as a secure care facility, which they have no oversight over. So they uh-huh. said, we're not, we don't, we don't need to do this. If you want to house pretrial detainees, you're going to need to come back and, and do the licensing process over again. Mm. Um, but that didn't. So, you know, I, if you kind of read this with the, you know, giving Jackson Parish and everyone kind of the benefit of the doubt, and then Jackson Parish hasn't responded to me, so I don't know what their position on this is. Yeah. It's possible you could see it as some sort of a misunderstanding. Mm. Um, like maybe they, oh, you know, it's hard. It's hard to to really reconcile, but it could be that they thought if they're using utilizing their facility as an OJJ secure care facility, then they could 
sort of go ahead and also use it as a juvenile detention facility without getting this license. Is it? That's not. Okay, that's not happening. So that doesn't. That's not. That's not the case. Okay. Is it? Is it? Um. You're under. You're understanding from families of these pre-adjudicated youth that are in this facility now. Are they commingling with the um, prisoners that had been transferred in from Angola? So they were. Um, I talked to to two mothers uh, of kids there and both of them said that they had been in this dormitory setting where there were both pretrial and OJJ kids and that there was that they were getting in fights and being jumped by these kids and that the the staff were not doing anything to break it up and they had actually asked to be put in uh cells to be put in protective uh custody basically within within the facility um but and and they were Um, but that meant that they were being held in their cells for 23 hours a day. Um, you know, not getting hardly any recreation. They were, I think in the, in the dorm settings, they said that some of the kids had tablets and could make phone calls pretty easily, whereas they weren't given these tablets. They had kind of limited, uh, time when they can, can make phone calls and, and, and contact people. Um, so, you know, it, it was, it, it was a really tough situation that these kids were, were describing, um, where on the one hand, you know, you risk, feel like you're risking your safety being in this open dorm setting. And on the other hand, you are, are trapped in a cell. Um, so, you know, that, 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 that's the reality, um, from what I can tell. And it, it bears repeating or underscoring. These are youth juveniles that have not been found guilty of anything yet. Yeah. These are That's right. kids who were arrested or waiting trial. That's right. Okay. What else are families telling you? They want their kids out of there. I mean, it's worth noting that the, the kind of conditions described by these mothers that I talked to, and I actually talked to a kid who, who's in there as well, um, are uh, totally in line with what, OJJ kids are also telling civil rights attorneys about their experience in the facility. They say they're being maced by guards. Um, they say they're being not given adequate education, um, that they're being held in solitary confinement. Um, so, you know, it's pretty uniform, these testimonies from what's, what's going on in the facility. And, you know, the mothers I talked to said, we want our kids out of there. Um, you know, I think, they believe that, you know, in some instances, they have, like I said, I talked to several mothers, but some of them believe that their kids shouldn't be incarcerated at all. But some said, you know, they should just be in a different facility. They're not safe here. Um, and they should be wherever they are. They should be safe. And so, yeah, it's it's a pretty, pretty bleak situation. Are there requirements, state requirements for pre-trial juveniles to to receive education educational services while they're awaiting trial yeah they're they are definitely required to be able to receive those services i think it's it's just always a question of what the facility allows and then who is 
who's responsible, right? Because some of the facilities have had contracted educational agencies, and I believe other facilities work directly with school districts. So, yeah, and I was just looking at the the licensing process for the DCFS users, and one of the things they have they have the facilities send in a packet um, of, of of documents even before the um, the inspection, and one of them is a, a Department of Education approval. So they need some, I think, proof that, that they are providing education. I remember, Nick, coming out of the pandemic, one of the big stories in the criminal justice system, the courts anyway, was just this giant backlog of cases. How are we doing now with that? I mean, what's the, what's the average wait time? This is not fair to spring this question on you, but how long does, do these kids wait to, to have their cases tried? That's a good question, actually, and and my guess is it it varies a lot from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. So um, I'm not entirely sure what and and it's and it's supposed to be a much faster process in the in the juvenile system, um, but I'm not sure what what it's what kind of the average average length of time is for for someone who's incarcerated pretrial to have their case moved through the system. Okay, and. With now that the the light is shining on this situation here at this facility in Jackson, um, what recourse do the do the parents of or the you know the families of these kids have to get them out? Good question. I mean, I've been repeatedly reaching out to DCFS because if in fact they these kids are being held there, which you know they they are and they don't have a license it's illegal and the recourse is dcfs could shut this facility down and you know they could stop them from housing pre-child detainees and and they also are supposed to be fined a thousand a day for every day that they've been doing that um so that what should be happening as far as i can tell i don't I know that I, I talked to a mother today's Thursday. I talked to her yesterday and she, her kid was still there. Um, DCFS has not updated me at all. You know, and it, when I initially reached out to them, they said they were going to look into it. Um, I don't know where they're at with that, but that's their role. They're the oversight body for these facilities. And, and that's who would, who would take action if, if anyone is going to take action. I mean, and then, you know, there's questions of whether or not state lawmakers would would sort of speak up or intervene and i haven't heard anything in that arena although i've you know tried tried reaching out to some folks Mm, right and i I think one of the big concerns there is just like this slippery slope right of of where we're keeping where kids are being housed we had that incident where kids were going out of state and there were um licensure issues and education concerns too um and then now here you just you don't want a situation where kids are being housed in a place that's not licensed to house them it's not appropriate to house them um and then if this you know if this continues is that going to happen in other parishes and I, I think you know this is something we're really interested in and happy that nick is following so that we ensure that these kids are, are kept in a safe environment right and here's a wildly cynical thought let's say let's say they do get ultimately fined a thousand dollars a day for this violation right so the ojj or whoever it is would pay this fine to whoever it is that would collect the fine that would in this cynical view would result in less money 
for OJJ to do right by these kids in the first place? Well, it would be the Jackson Parish Sheriff's Office who would pay this fine mm-hmm. um, because they're the ones operating the facility for pretrial. But if you wanted to be cynical about it, Jackson Parish right now, which we describe in this story, it's not just kids from Jackson Parish who are being housed there pretrial. We know that Lincoln Parish, uh, a neighboring parish, is sending kids who are arrested in that parish to Jackson to house them, and they're paying them $200 a day kid, roughly. So I don't know. We don't know how many kids Jackson Parish is holding from other parishes, mm. but it could be that they're making more than $1,000 a day. Um, and mm. that, you know, cumulatively, it may have been worth it for the sheriff's office to house these kids and, and they, the fine may not, you know, ultimately really account for, for all that money that they were actually bringing in. Um, right. So they're so benefiting from, yeah. from these prisoners. Exactly. Okay. Oh, that's bleak. All right. Uh, phase three. So that was kind of interesting. There was a, a momentary pause, but now the hammers are going to start swinging again, maybe. Tell us what happened this week. Yeah, so uh, Voice of the Experience and Advocacy Organization had filed a lawsuit back in September um, alleging that money for Phase 3 was improperly allocated, that the that, uh, Mayor LaToya Cantrell's administration went against the city charter when it uh, moved money from kind of other projects to phase three without getting approval from the city council. Um, so vote filed this lawsuit saying we should have been entitled to this democratic process. We would have gone to the city council meeting and, you know, given public comment and voiced our opposition and maybe the council would have voted against this allocation. Um, that lawsuit was initially moved. It was filed in state court, was moved to federal court, and then just uh, recently bounced back to state court. Um, and vote was able to get just a, a temporary restraining order um, prior to a hearing on, on the merits of the case. And so on Monday, uh, that temporary restraining order was issued and, and construction, which there, which was apparently supposed to start on Monday. There were notices that were sent out by uh, the construction company saying pile driving will begin on Monday. They had a judge sign, sign this order blocking it. But then on Wednesday, there was a hearing in which the judge ruled against it, and now uh, construction is is once again free to move forward. It's got to be hard for that construction company. How about all those people that are waiting to go to work? And, um, you know, besides the controversy around the facility itself, I'm just thinking of all the the people and their jobs. Yeah, I mean... In order to get this temporary restraining order, Vote had to put up a $50,000 bond. Um, and it's unclear what's going to happen with that bond now that the judge has ruled them. The city wants Vote to, to relinquish it. Um, and I don't know how that, how that money would be spent. The, you know, the purpose is that if the city, uh, incurred some, some, um, cost from this from this temporary pause hmm. that this money would be would be used to cover it um but it hmm. hasn't been determined yet whether or not that's, that's actually going to be the case um and in terms of i yeah i have no idea kind of what the the uh workflow is like for the construction company or, or whether or not you know this delay may caused a big 
hiccup or whether or not it, you know, maybe they wouldn't have been ready to move forward anyways. Um, you know, the, the, I'm, I'm not sure how, how that works. They have definitely been setting up a staging area outside of the jail on prior to this. So, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. And then Nick, cause we've talked about it so many times. Remind me if I'm correct in remembering that, um, uh, there were a couple people on the city council that were that were positing that this sort of workaround that the Cantrell administration had done was potentially not okay, and they they were suggesting that that was a way, perhaps to to stop it. And then vote came in to to do that. Is that right? It's been primarily advocacy organizations that have taken issue with the with the funding, which is kind of an interesting thing because if in in some ways the fact that Cantrell went on the council was a I haven't pulled the council members, but my guess is they were totally with it because it it allowed them to not take a hard vote, um, and one in which they you know, are facing community members who really don't want this disability built versus a judge who says, I'm going to hold you in contempt of court if you don't do this. Um, and so I think that when the Cantrell mm. administration, again, like I say, some speculation, I've not talked to all these council members, but from a political standpoint, mm. they kind of got let off the hook. Um, and so I don't think, it, you know, they haven't been making a big deal of it at council meetings saying, you know, the administrations went around, you know, went over our heads and did this illegally. Kind of like, you know, and some of them have, have expressly said, we don't think, uh, we don't think that Joe, uh, Councilman Joe Russo in particular has said, I don't think they needed council approval for this. You mm. know, the judge, the federal judge is very clear, you need to move forward. Um, so it made sense for them to go ahead and allocate the money. Um, so in this case, it really is, you know, vote kind of forcing the issue as opposed to any sort of conflict between the council and the administration. Okay. And all along, I, I've sort of been, I don't know, t t not teasing you, but saying, here, you know, it's, it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And you've always expressed some um, wise skepticism if the process, and, and you were proven right. And as is, you know, obvious now after that temporary restraining order, but now that that's lifted, are you comfortable saying you think that this thing is going to actually, in fact, go now without delay? Hmm. <laughs> Maybe not. I, I think that there's a lot of ways to delay a project that people, you know, when, when all the parties involved in uh, making the project happen are opposed to it, mm -hmm. I think there's um, a lot of ways to, to delay. And, you know, I do, the project is moving forward. You know, there, over the last year, there's been many things that it's, it's been moving forward. Um, so I think that that will likely continue. And I think that really stopping the project would, is a very, you know, I think it would be a tall order. I don't know, you know, as I, as I mentioned in the piece, the sheriff's office also has a, has a, a legal challenge that's pending before, um, the fifth circuit court of appeals. So anything could happen with that. Um, but 
I think, you know, if, if kind of depends on the position of, of the advocacy organizations and, and council members and the city and the sheriff and how difficult they want to make this thing versus whether or not they've, they've kind of given up and, and, you know, look, this is what we're doing now and, and we're just going to go forward with it. Um, and so I think that it sort of remains to be seen, you know, it, the sheriff was there in the morning when um, the hearing was supposed to take place and has been at, you know, anti-phase three rallies. Um, so she's making her opposition to it pretty uh, uh, public and, and pretty vocal. So, yeah, like I say, we'll see. This thing has been drawn out for so long that it's hard to imagine a scenario in which it just sort of speeds through for the next couple <laughs> of years and then it's open. Maybe that's what happens. I don't know. Okay finish off that bridge to nowhere. It has to go somewhere. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks, Nick. Thank you. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle and education reporter Marta Jusen. Hi, I'm Delaney Dreyfus, environmental reporter at The Lens. You rely on the lens for thoughtful, questioning, and thorough examinations of events and institutions in New Orleans and our region. When you support our efforts, you join in on the process of examining life and culture in a way that makes us all better citizens and better people. Support the independent news that supports you and your life. Make a tax-free donation today at thelensnola.org, and thank you. Marta, there are several New Orleans schools that are sitting on pins and needles at this moment waiting to hear from the um, Board of Education to know if their charters have been renewed. What's happening? Yeah, so 21 of our schools, which is about a quarter of our schools actually, are either up for charter contract or renewals or extensions, uh, essentially the lifeline of a school in the city. So if your contract is not renewed or extended by the Orleans Parish School Board, that means that you close. The majority of those schools are up for contract renewals, so that's a new five to ten year contract, and um, five of them are in their first contract, which means they go through an extension process. So they're four years into their first five year contract, and they have to um, kind of get the thumbs up to finish out the last year of their contract, essentially. So yes, we are awaiting letter grades from the state or from the State Department of Education, which I think will be out um, in the coming week. And based on those letter grades, the school board will make their or the the NOLA Public Schools superintendent will make recommendations. What was the delay from the State Department of Education? There's no delay actually. I, I asked oh. them that and they were like, Did someone tell you there was a delay? And I was like, No, but you know, in 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 prior years, they had come. These grades had come out the first week of November, so mm-hmm. I, I made an assumption, and I think Nola Public Schools made that same assumption because Nola Public Schools had planned to make this announcement by November 14th, and they're not going to be able to do that. So uh, looks like they made the same assumption. Um, the last year scores did come out um, in the middle of the month, so they. The State Department said, you know, there's no delay. We don't know what you're talking mm-hmm. about. Uh, they're going to be out at the same time. So, Okay. What schools are in trouble? I think the the school that people are uh, most concerned about, which is the one that the NOLA Public Schools explicitly named, was Esperance Academy, which is a um, 
a school that really attracts a lot of uh, non-native English speakers because they focus on providing an environment to help English learners, um, and the district said they're expected to receive an F. Um, so that would make you ineligible for a contract extension, which is what they need one more year on their contract. Um, but they are one of six schools that is going through what they call a comprehensive evaluation process. That's where the district comes in and, and sort of looks beyond letter grade and you know, and says, are we seeing growth added in other areas? What do parents think of the school? You know, that kind of stuff. And when this announcement happens from the State Department of Education, the superintendent Williams will just right away announce their closures or renewals. I, I assume that there's some behind the scenes discussion already. So that's an excellent question. I mean, some element of this is like going to be plug and go, right? Yeah. Like certain schools get an F, not going to get renewed. Right. Um, but there's also kind of this process that goes into, okay, like were they right on the edge of getting, you know, the next letter grade up? Or did we see growth scores that are so much more improved than the year before that we want to, you know, kind of keep them open and see how they're doing? Um, so there is, I would say there is kind of that yes and no, like when you see the letter grade flash, you're kind of maybe grimace, but mm. there's also, you know, there's a little more nuance that goes into it. So all that to say, people won't know next week what is going to happen with their school necessarily. Um, the district, after the district puts those letter grades in and comes up with all their formulations, um, then they, you know, provide a week of advance notice to schools about what's going to happen. And then they provide a certain day's number of notice to families about what's happened. And I think that's likely all going to uh, time out with their mid-December board meeting. So I don't think folks are going to be finding out for a, a minute. Okay. And does this dovetail at all, do you think, with their right-sizing efforts that they undertook a year ago or so? I, I think that's, so that's like really interesting question here is how you run a school system that um, is, a, you know, essentially a marketplace of schools and it's supposed to be, a, you know, a free market of schools, but doesn't have enough kids to keep all those schools open and functioning at a, you know, financially sustainable levels. So I think if you, if you saw the district closing schools that had received great, they should stay open, you would see a big fuss. And I don't think they're going to, I don't think they're necessarily going to do that. Um, Cause I think that would, that kind of, that kind of undermines the whole process, right. Or the whole concept of the school district. So I don't think you're going to see that. I think, what you potentially might see is in the past where if a school was going to close and um, maybe there's more of a rallying cry from the community, um, those kids are wanted in other buildings, right? Mm -hmm. Like literally to fill seats, to bring more money to a school. Right. Um, so it kind of creates this interesting dynamic where maybe not everyone's not in everyone's corner necessarily. I don't know schools want another school to fail, but mm -hmm. you know, a closing school does mean more kids in open school seats. So mm -hmm. it is an interesting dynamic. Okay, well, I'm sure we'll be hearing from you soon about that. All right, you guys. Nice to see you both. You I'll see you later. I'm good. Bye. Okay, bye. Bye. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guest this week, criminal justice reporter Nick Crestel and education reporter Marta Jusen. 
You can read all the week's other news plus opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.